Tonight's New Testament reading can be found on page 2 and 3 of your bulletins, Matthew 12, 38 through 45. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we're asking that every heart, every spirit in this room would find you. You've been revealing yourself. This is the whole reason you brought us here. It isn't just to do church or do religion. You're revealing yourself to us. Give us eyes to see you and to know you. For the sake of the glory of your wonderful son, Jesus. Amen. So, we've got a couple more weeks here before we round out this series on what we're calling Jesus' Bible. And that is, we're looking at um, the times where Jesus refers to the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And as I've mentioned before, Jesus grew up knowing this and taking this Bible in, and it shaped who he was. It shaped who he was. And this week we're going to look at this idea of how it shaped his view of faith. You've heard that uh, throughout the service. That's our focus. Now, if you have ever thought, I wish I could have faith like this person, or I wish I could have stronger faith or more faith, but it's just not in the cards for me. You know, it's just, my, you know, it's my personality, it's my experiences, I'm just like a real logical person, I'm a person that really struggles to believe things that are sort of outside of me, it's the circumstances in my life, all those different things. If that's you, I want to encourage you tonight. I want to give you some good news now, I've been doing ministry for near 30 years, and here's the good news. I have seen people of all types and stripes and faces and races and ethnicities and circumstances find faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, thinkers and feelers, 
two on the Enneagram and nine on the Enneagram. Those that were raised atheist, those that were raised Christian, those that were raised Muslim, those that were, ra were raised Hindu, Canadians, Ethiopians. That wasn't a shot against Canadians. I could have put, listen, I could have put anything else first, right? But I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll get, you know, anyway. Ethiopians, Canadians, Brazilians, Washingtonians. People that have a fat bank account and people that barely know where their next meal's coming from. People that have had um, wonderfully supportive families and people that have experienced such terrible hardship and abuse. People of all sorts of folk have found faith in Jesus. Why is that? Because the reasons that we don't have faith aren't the ones that we think are. It's not because of personality. It's not because, hey, I'm a really rational person. And it's not because of circumstances. It's not because culture. It's not those reasons why someone has faith or doesn't have faith. And that's really where Jesus points us to in this passage this evening. As he speaks to the religious leaders about their faith and points them back to the book that they held in common, the Old Testament. And what he does is he speaks to the focus of faith and the freedom of faith. The focus of faith and the freedom of faith. So let's do that together. Time we have here. So by this point in the text, and we can read it all, Jesus has performed countless miracles, countless healings and deliverances. And because the religious leaders can't refute the evidence of them, meaning they happened, they actually were there and saw them, they have to try another tact. So what they do is try to impugn the source. They basically say, uh, you know, we can't contest your performance, but you've been doping with the devil. You've been aligned with dark forces. Now Jesus basically shows the absurdity of that. He also warns them that, you know, you're, you're really close to crossing a line here. You know, there's some lines that you cross and you realize that was not, that was not a good thing. He tries to warn him that. But then they come back with sort of a pretense of fake politeness and say, if you really want to convince us of your credibility, what we need is a sign from heaven. All the signs that Jesus had done to this point were on earth. They were earthly signs. We need something that isn't sort of generated here. I mean, we need a direct sign from heaven. We need God to do something from the sky. If we do, if you do that, then we'll believe. Now, the truth of the matter is they'll never be satisfied. They'll never be content. Because sign after sign after sign after sign haven't um, fulfilled their desire. And that's because the problem isn't lack of evidence. Listen, the Christian faith and the God of the Bible are not opposed to evidence. Because he's made us rational beings, right? Thinking beings. I once had some well-meaning uh, Mormon missionaries who Meg and I got to know over really some months... 
And one of them said to me, I just want you to, um, I just want you to pray and ask whether the Book of Mormon is true and see what the answer is. And I said, listen, I, you know, I could pray that all day long, but I still have trouble with some historical stuff. <laughs> That's not going to persuade me. God isn't opposed to our rationality, right? The book of Romans actually says this about evidence. God's invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world through the things that have been made. What is he saying there? God has supplied us with evidence, and some of the smartest people around affirm that. Francis Collins, right? He's written over and over, the director of NIH, over and over, how he sees God in the work he does. Again, it doesn't matter if you're rational, not rational. One of the scenes that won't happen on the final day when people are standing before God is saying to God, listen, I would have believed in you, but you really didn't do a good job providing enough evidence, and God's going to go, I'm sorry, my bad. Come on in. That's not going to happen. Because he's made the world. He's made people in his image. He has given signs. But one of the things that Jesus is doing here and trying to point the religious leaders to is sometimes the problem is not evidential, evidential, it's relational. It's not evidential, it's relational. After all, God isn't an object, he's a person. And you can only trust in a person. It's a personal thing. Trust in a person can never be achieved by more evidence and more evidence and more evidence. And maybe you've been in relationships before where you feel like no matter what I do, no matter what I say, this person will not believe me. I was thinking about Shakespeare's play Othello. And if you know the story, Othello is misled by one of his so-called friends. And uh, he deceives Othello into believing that his wife, Desdemona, is having an affair, that she's being unfaithful. And so that suspicion lays in on him, and although she's completely innocent and faithful, that's all he can see. And he finally ends up, in a crazy jealous rage, murdering her. What's the point? Here's the thing. Once you've decided someone is unfaithful, once someone is settled in your suspicion... The only thing that will satisfy you is confirming proof of that. That's the only thing that will satisfy you. I mean, we see this all the time with our culture wars, right? Where we look at the other side and we've already settled so much into suspicion about certain people. Whatever they do is just confirmation of what we already believe. We're not able actually to see them apart from that. And that's what it is with the religious leaders. And it's also the truth with us and our faith. Why are the religious leaders never satisfied with the evidence? Well, Jesus answers that because he says what you're rejecting is not the data or the evidence. You're rejecting me. This is actually a personal thing about your ability to receive me. 
And he answers to them and says that the only sign you will be given is the sign of Jonah, pointing them back to the Hebrew prophet. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Some of you know, when we just got a little slice of the book of Jonah, Jonah was the prophet, the wrong way prophet. God sent Jonah to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, and said, I want you to preach the good news of my grace. And Jonah, because he doesn't like the Assyrians and he doesn't like the Ninevites, says, no, I'm not doing that. And he goes the other way. And through extraordinary events, which Jesus actually corroborates historically, he's swallowed by a big old whale fish. And then he's spit up on shore. He goes to Nineveh, he preaches, they hear the word and they repent. Now here's the thing, Jonah didn't perform any miracles. He didn't provide them any signs. The man was the sign. And you see that's what Jesus is saying here. You will see a sign and that sign will be the son of man, it will be me. I will be swallowed by death. He is the one who Jonah's words come to complete fulfillment with. I will be driven away. I will be taken down to the deep. But death won't hold me and I will burst through and I will be the sign that answers the faith of those that hear and those that see. And that is the sign he is the sign that ultimately answers all your doubts. He is the sign that will, he is the only sign that will ultimately answer your doubts. Because really, in the end, all of our doubts are personal. All of our doubts are really about, it's a relational universe. As you and I doubt, God, how do I even know you're there? What does he do? God comes in the flesh as a person. God, I'm lonely. How do I know you even care about my life and my hardship? He comes as one that enters into loneliness. He's one that enters into marginalization, enters into the poor and into the suffering. God, how do I know I'll be able to endure my suffering? He comes as one who bears suffering, bears a cross, bears heals by his own wounds. God, how will I know that I can get past this guilt or get past the fact I'll never measure up? Because the Son of God comes to live the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. God, how will I know that pandemics and wars and death won't be the end. Because I'm just standing on the other side, the Son of Man. I am standing on the other side. All of our doubts are answered, answered in the sign of the man that God sent, Jesus Christ. Friends, um, God may give you your dream house and he might give you your dream spouse he might give you your dream job and your dream bod I'm rhyming <laughs> I will not say rapping I'm rhyming I'm far too uncool to rap but you know he can give you that stuff everything you want and it'll be enough until the next time to the next thing. 
And so it'll never be enough. And I tell you, I have seen a lot of people over my years of ministry. And the fundamental struggle really is they're always waiting for the next sign. They're always waiting for the next sign that God is for them and God is present and he's near them. And these other things become greater than the sign of the man, of the God-man who is sent for them. So, that leads to the question, okay, I can get in that, I can buy that, but, you know, how do I, all these people you described, uh, especially the apostles, they, they saw these things. They saw signs. What about me? What about you? They saw those signs, but those signs were never the basis of faith. They couldn't be. Uh, every now and then we hear of stories where um, a, uh, someone will leave their inheritance to a stranger. Um, that happened to anybody here? Um, so in the 1930s, this happened in Paris, where uh, this young woman, she was an actress, uh, received this huge sum of money from a stranger. She didn't know him. It turned out, though, that he was a friend of her uncle. And he knew of her basically just through her uncle's, uh, his uncle's, wor her uncle's words about her. Now, imagine you're in that circumstance there. You get called in, they read the will, they tell you that story, you never met this person. I bet every one of us would say, I can't accept this money. I didn't see, I didn't know the person. I don't have tangible evidence I'm in relationship with them. I don't think so. I think most of us, most of us would be glad to receive the testimony and the witness. We'd be glad to receive the word, the official word. It's the same thing with a great inheritance of faith that God gives to you and me, right? I mean, how is it that those that came after the generations when Israel was delivered and ransomed from Egypt, how is it that they own that story as their own? It's the testimony in the word. And how would the apostles... One of the verses to me that's so significant, this is Peter, right? He's the first among equals, Peter the apostle. And he says at one point in one of his letters, listen, we didn't, we didn't invent cleverly invented stories here and miss to tell you that. We were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus and we heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But then he goes on to say, that's really not the basis for faith. He goes, we have something more sure. I mean, it's part of the basis, but we have something more sure than that. The word of the prophets. He's basically saying, my Bible, the Old Testament word, that's actually the basis of faith. The New Testament says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Faith in a person can only be achieved by trusting in their word. That's the only way it'll happen. And because God is a person, the only way you and I will grow 
in faith, whether you are someone seeking the Christian faith, looking into it for the first time, or you're someone that constantly feels like I'm looking outside to see what he's doing in my life so I could have some confidence that he's real, the only way you and I are going to grow in faith is trusting his word. And we're not alone. He gives us his spirit who testifies that we are children of God. But that's the focus of the faith, not the signs, but the man. But how about the freedom of faith? In the book of Romans, which I referred to earlier, the Apostle Paul writes that um, each of us has this proclivity, sinful proclivity, to hold down the truth like a, like a beach ball in the ocean. To take, like, we, we want to suppress, we hold down the truth because of the implications. Frankly, it scares us. And all the things that it means. And this considers the truth of what God has done. Listen to what he says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. He's talking about humankind. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then he says they, they went on then to make things in their own image that would be God's substitutes. Functional gods instead of the real living God. Two things about that to, to sort of round us home here and close out. Uh, one of the great marks of our age, especially in the West, is we live in a God-to-me culture. That means people start their sentences off by saying, God, the reference point to God is what I think he is. Right? God-to-me is what I think he is. It, it's, it's really frightening to me. It, it really has got to the place where people will stake their eternal truth based on whatever they believe in their head. Like, I believe this is what's going to happen, therefore, that's what's going to happen. Uh, and many times, it's just a supersized version of ourselves, right? It becomes God. And at its heart, um, it's convenient, and it's comfortable, and it's spiritually lazy. Because we don't really have to go very far from ourselves, right? We just sort of project. There's not much faith involved in that. And it's our wisdom that becomes the measuring stick and not the wisdom of God. Um, have you ever had a conversation with someone, and uh, it may have been me, a uh, conversation with someone where uh, every time you try to speak about yourself, they reference their own life? Right? right? You're sort of like saying, this is, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened to me. It's about them. Or you say something, it's about them, right? They, they, they can't ever see the other person without self-reference. That's what people do with God. Right? God is basically just my self-reference point. And so we're told, Jesus says, about the great Ethiopian queen, Sheba. 
And she travels 1,500 miles to hear the wisdom of Solomon about who God is. The Pharisees, religious leaders, won't travel an inch in their hearts. I want to ask you, are you settling for a comfortable, convenient faith? What's it costing you? How far are you willing to travel to hear his voice? When I was a, a college uh, student, you know, I had never heard of, I think I mentioned this before, um, I had never really heard of Christian music because I, I just hadn't. And um, this was early on in the Christian music world, but you know, one of the sort of granddaddies with a guy, was a guy named Keith Green. Some of you guys are shaking your head, right? Your parents probably played it. And, yeah, man, he was, he was kind of a wild prophet. He was like a John the Baptist behind the piano. And uh, he had one of these lines in his song where he just says prophetically, Jesus rose from the dead and you won't get out of your bed. Now, for a college student, that really got you, right? Because <laughs> you're like, you know, you're all about like, I ain't getting up, right? How far will we travel? God, how are you and I willing to know God on his own terms? Now, at that point, you might say, well, you know, you own terms. This is just a bunch of people that created this up. It's just another version, Glenn, of what's out there. Well, think about it this way. If God is a person, and I would say it's probably good chances he are, because guess what? You're here. You know? Persons usually come from persons. If God is a person, that means he has a personality. If he's God, he has a really big personality. He's got a lot to get to know, and that means he's got to reveal himself to you. He's got to reveal himself to you, and it has to be in a way where it's not just me thinking I'm hearing his voice, but he has his own voice. That takes you down to three religions of the book. One of them, I think, gets to what we're after. Actually, two of them do. Christians see them as the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures. Second thing, so our faith gets free as we begin to say, I, I'm not going to just stay in this space where God is whoever I want him to be. But lastly, gratitude for signs. So a uh, film I really like is a film uh, by M. Night Shyamalan called Signs. Anybody ever, anybody, I'm just curious, see Signs? Well, don't bother. I'm going to spoil it for you anyway. No, I'm not. I'm going to try to be, my, my daughter here hates when I do that. I'm going to just vaguely, I'm going to do my best to dance around it. But, you know, it's 20 years old. So, it's not like I'm talking about Cobra Kai, okay? So, in this film, uh, Mel Gibson plays an Episcopal priest who has lost his faith and left his job because his wife was tragically killed in a car accident. And now he's living on a farm, farming, and he lives with his adult younger brother who is a failed minor league baseball player, his preteen son who suffers from great uh, asthma, health issues, and then his young daughter. And one day, there's a sign, crop circle. That begins to evolve. And guess what? 
There's aliens on the farm. And these aren't nice aliens. They're hostile aliens. And so here he is trying to protect his family. And the way the film unfolds it is just, I, I mean, at one point I saw this with, uh, I saw this when this came out in what they used to call movie theaters. And, uh, and uh, you know, movie theater, I literally, there was this scene where I, I grabbed the leg of the guy next to me. And I'm not a big, I just went, ah, like that. It's not a scary film, but there's a scene or two in it that kind of gets you. So there's this great battle developing, but to leave some of it ambiguous, their great deliverance and salvation comes from some baseball skills and the fact that the young boy's illness actually saves him from dying. And so the signs actually turn out to be that. And he sees those signs of God and it restores his faith, returns him back to his vocation. You and I often want signs in the sky. We want the sign of the, the big thing that I don't see. Well, all the time, God is doing stuff in all our lives. I don't care who you are, whether you're someone that's a professing Christian or not. God is at work and moving in ways. But do we see it? Do you see those signs? And one of the ways we see them is gratitude. Uh, for some of us, we are like a cup with a hole in it. The reason our cup never runneth over with gratitude is because actually in the book of Romans we'll say this, why did humankind ultimately fall into sin? I read it to you because they didn't honor God or give him thanks. You can't see what he's doing in your life if you're not stopping and thanking him or if it's just never enough. That might be the very, very thing that returns you to faith. Or gives you faith for the first time. And there's a warning here. Because God has performed mercy signs in the life of everybody in this room. All of us are on the hook, friends. No one will be able to stand before God. And you will, I will. And say, there was no mercy in my life. We didn't see it. And Jesus has to give some danger here, some warning. He uses this analogy about, uh, you know, a, a house, someone that is uh, possessed by a demon. And back in ancient times, they would say waterless places, haunts because there was no fruitfulness in the desert or a place of demons. And he says what happens is uh, the, the, the demon is driven out of the house. And, of course, he's done this a lot of people. He's cleaned out a lot of houses. But what happens? The house remains unoccupied. God works. God delivers. But he's not invited in. He's not invited in to be present. And Jesus goes on to say, for the person that responds that way, it'll be seven times worse than it was before. You and I are accountable for the signs of mercy in our lives. And the good news is, with a little bit of gratitude and a little bit of humility, each of us 
can begin to see them. And man, it'll be like driving down, uh, where is it, that place in Tennessee, there's billboards everywhere, right? Signs everywhere, what's that? Yeah, yeah, Rock City. Uh, Signs everywhere. So, tonight, Jesus in his Bible gives us a gift where all of our faith can grow and be strong. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for the sign of Jesus and this gospel and story that is like no other. He didn't come primarily as a guru or to light the way. He came to die the way. Uh, His life is the curtain. Lord, I pray you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. We pray tonight there would be new faith. We pray there would be restored faith. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we'd see the sign of your grace and the sign of your Son in Christ's name. Amen.